Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from University of Buffalo, and I love co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Matt Fox from Boston University. How are you today, Matt? I'm doing great, Haley. I'm just curious. What, what you did anything interesting over the past hour or so? I had one of the best discussions of my entire life about modern epidemiology. Wow. Tell me about it. It was with this brilliant, brilliant, patient, and incredibly kind person who um, didn't reach through the screen to shake me after I forgot to record an entire hour-long podcast. Hey, it was a good conversation. It was great. And unfortunately, you and I are the only ones who will ever know what was part of it. (laughs) Oh, these things happen. Here we are with take two. We are um, talking about chapter five in the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. The chapter is about measures of effect and measures of association. So in this chapter, it goes through kind of what I'll call the bread and butter um, calculations that we often use in epidemiology. So difference measures, ratio measures, rate uh, measures, rate difference, rate ratio, etc. So all of those kind of measures that we calculate. It then goes into some discussion about what confounding is and why that's relevant is because it takes us from measures of association to measures of effect. And they do this really nice job of, of linking the two concepts. So, so that's the kind of bridge in the middle of the chapter. And then the chapter ends with a discussion about attributable fractions and uh, attributable risk, etc. A whole bunch of different terms for this, this one concept. Yeah. So to me, this is a, like a, such a fundamental chapter. And I, I really, despite the the fact that it is a a very dense chapter and there's a lot to go through, I love the way that this chapter is set up to progress from what was in the previous chapter on measures of disease frequency to build those into measures of association and then to tie that back to the chapter that we had, what was it, chapter three, where they talk about the counterfactuals and we link those two together in a really nice way to go from measures of association to measures of effect. I think a good place to start with this chapter is this concept of an effect. So I, this is where the, the authors start off. The section is called measures of effect on page 79. So the idea of an effect, do you think an effect always has to be causal? So I think that in the way that we talk about effects, the, the word itself implies causation. So I guess my answer to your question would be, yeah, I can't think of a, of a scenario in which I would be talking about um, an effect without referring to causation. So do you think it is always necessary to talk about effects in terms of a contrast and this is where you know the book calls causal contrast so can you say the effect of smoking does that mean anything to you or does it always have to be the effect of smoking with reference to some other comparator so first of all i assume you mean the effect of smoking on let's say lung cancer yes yeah sorry to be more specific. so so there so so the question then becomes can we just talk about the effect of smoking on lung cancer or do we have to define some alternative scenario exactly yeah so this is i mean so this is i think the book does a really nice job of this and talking about the idea of causal contrasts and i you know i i do think this is really important i do think that when I think about generating information that is useful from epidemiologic research, the causal contrast becomes really important. It becomes very hard for me to tell you what I expect the effect of an exposure to be on an outcome unless I can define what the alternative is. And this comes directly out of the the counterfactual model where I say I can define an effect as being if I, if I have two well-defined scenarios and I have one person who experiences those two scenarios, exposures, whatever you want to call them, goes through them at the same time, if the outcomes are different, then I have a causal effect. If the outcomes are the same, then I have no causal effect. 
So in that sense, you know, in the sense of trying to figure out what do we do in order to improve health, then I think it matters a lot. I think the contrast really matters. The effect of, you know, smoking five packs a day for five years on lung cancer, the risk of lung cancer, that effect is going to be different if the alternative is smoking 10 packs a day versus if the alternative is smoking zero packs a day. And I think that matters in terms of what we tell people to do. So do you think it is incorrect for people to use the, the term effect with reference to an association between two variables? I do. Yeah, I think if we are, if we are, I mean, obviously, you can have a scenario where you are looking at an effect, and therefore you will observe an association. But to simply use the term uh, effect to refer to an association, I would say is, is not a good idea. And it's not a good idea because it's not precise enough. It's not why do you, it's not telling your readers or whomever what you really mean. Like, why do you think it's not a good idea? So an association under the counterfactual model, the effect that we are interested in is defined as either one person under two different scenarios, or as we do in epidemiology, one population of people under two scenarios at the same time. That is, and from that information, we could generate an effect measure. We could generate a causal risk difference or a causal risk ratio or whatever it is we're interested in. That's an effect. An association is what we measure in the real world. It's two populations under two scenarios. And we are measuring the association in, in etiologic epidemiology. We are measuring that association in an attempt to uh, estimate what that causal effect is. So to me, if I just say association... I, you know, I don't think the, the person I'm talking to is going to know whether I'm talking about causation or simply association. So one of the parts about this contrast idea is the validity of your inferences really rests on the comparator that you have chosen. And I think that is a really important point that, that we, we should discuss further. So how do you... How do you explain this when you're when you're talking about why it's so important to have a, a good comparison group? So when I think about the alternative, you know, the, the thing that I'm going to compare my exposure to, I think in that case, what I'm doing is trying to understand what a person uh, who is faced with a, a decision, you know, what their best course of action is based on the causal relationship between the exposure and the outcome in order to give them good actionable information, then I need to define what the two conditions are that I'm comparing. So if a, you know, if a person is, is considering they, they're, you know, smoking five packs a day, and they're considering dropping down to three packs a day, and I give them information about the effect of smoking five packs a day compared to quitting completely, it's not going to capture that relationship that is going to allow them to make good decisions. So we want to define that alternative very well. I do think though it gets tricky. I mean, so you asked about causal contrasts. Under the under the counterfactual model, it's very clear that if I do if I have the same outcome under two different scenarios at the same time, then we would say there is no effect of that exposure on the outcome. But I think that is in contrast to the way we sometimes think about causation. So the, the example that Tyler Vanderweel has used that I, I think is really enlightening is imagine that you, there's a, a person who is going to go out into the, into the desert. And so they have a canteen full of water and somebody comes along and poisons the water. And then that person goes out into the desert and they are thirsty and they drink the poison water and they die from having consumed poison water. Now imagine a second scenario that instead of, so somebody gonna go out into the desert, somebody poisons their water, but a second person then comes along and dumps out their water. So there's now no poisoned water left in the canteen. There's no water at all. The person goes out into the desert and then they die from dehydration. So then the question becomes, would you say that drinking, in the first scenario, drinking poisoned water 
led to that person's death? I would say yes. As would I. I mean, I think that is okay, good. the way that we, we think about causation. But under the counterfactual model, I think we would say it did not cause their death because under both scenarios, you know, the poison water versus the no water, their end result is death in both scenarios. So I think that the the counterfactual model, which is, you know, sort of the way I just described it at the end, compared to the sufficient cause model, which is the way that I think, you know, sort of sums up the way we looked at it at first, can come to different conclusions around causation. The sufficient cause model can say you can have causation even if the outcome would be exactly the same. So yeah, I, I think causation is not always, you know, as simple as just using the counterfactual model to answer a question. So in this toy example that we're talking about, um, if the comparison we were making um, is going out into the desert and having a full canteen of clean water to drink versus going out into the desert and having a poisoned canteen of water, if that's the, the contrast that we're making, that still fits within the sufficient cause framework, right? And of course, it fits, in, it fits within both frameworks and there the models would agree. The sufficient cause model would say that drinking the poisoned canteen let, caused the death because they drank poison water. In the counterfactual model, we would say the drinking the poisoned water caused the death because in the alternative scenario of drinking unpoisoned water, they don't die. So one, one model requires the contrast, one doesn't. And, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed to say that I need I need a causal contrast to say in the scenario which is drink poison water or drink no water that drinking the poison water didn't cause the death even though they die in both scenarios. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. I don't think I had really thought about it in that way. I've never heard that example before, but because usually it's, you know, one causes it and one you don't have the outcome. Um, so it's it's a good point. I, I hadn't really thought of that much before, but I appreciate how it really highlights this issue of the importance of the causal contrast. Yeah, because I, I mean, I do think the the causal contrast is a really a, a really important point from a practical standpoint because I do think that the kind of you know actionable information that we're trying to generate in epidemiology means that we need a well defined alternative. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, you know, sort of thinking that 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 it, there are times when the two models diverge, and when the two models diverge, I think I am more likely to more likely to agree with the sufficient cause model than the counterfactual model. You're more likely to, interesting. So, so I, I should say, like, the outcomes are exactly the same in those two scenarios, right? The person dies. Yes. Yep. So you know. If my if I'm actually trying to advise somebody, should you drink the poison water or should you drink no water, then it makes no difference, right? So from a practical standpoint, there's 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 no difference. And the counterfactual model, you know, I it tells me the the right answer. However, if you're asking me about whether or not I believe drinking the poison water caused the person's death, I agree with the sufficient cause model. I think that the drinking the poison water caused the person's death, even though they would have died no matter what. That's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's a good thought experiment. It's a great example of a concept that I don't think I've ever heard discussed before. But, you know, here's where the text um, transitions to talking about um, the different measures of association and ultimately measures of effect. Um, and to sort of start us off thinking about this, I am curious whether um, you are a risk person or a rate person and in the context of the the chapter are you a um you know a, a incident rate ratio person or a uh risk ratio person it's a good question i would say i am a risk ratio person can you I say why i i should be better at it probably than i am i find r rates so hard to interpret risks just make much more sense to me. I can understand what they're saying um, 
in a way that I just can't wrap my head around rates. I, I, I'm not I'm not really sure why I necessarily struggle so much with that, but but that's you know I find them more interpretable risk ratios. What about you? I totally agree with you. I mean, I I think that for the average person, risk is something that we can we can comprehend. Is something going to happen to me over some period of time? And what are the you know what's the chances that it's going to happen to me? I don't think that people normally think about, you know, at what rate is this likely to happen to me over a period of time or how much does my rate increase? I think we think about how much does my risk increase? So I would agree with you. However, you know, it does seem to me that, you know, starting off from our intro to Epi courses, you know, it's it's very much drilled into us that rates have a lot of advantages to the way that we measure disease outcomes because, well, a number of different reasons, one of which being that, you know, it's very difficult to to follow people, all people for long enough time periods to be able to measure risk. I, I don't love that reason because it's a, it's a failing of us to be able to, to measure the thing that we want to measure. And by, you know, having people lost to follow up, we, we potentially create, you know, selection bias problems. So I've never loved that particular example, uh, a reason. But, you know, the other reason that I hear quite often is that, you know, risks change over time. And so thinking more in a, in a rate framework, uh, it's easier to think about sort of changing rates. Although, again, there I push back a little bit because I don't think we really do think a ton about rates changing over time within an effect measure, we often just like, you know, calculate a hazard ratio or an incident rate ratio. And we, we don't necessarily break it up into, you know, defined time periods such that we can see the, the, the risk or the hazard changing. So I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I totally buy the reasons why rates are, you know, really pushed as being uh, a more practical way to go than risks. I'm with you 100% on that. And and so to take that one step further, would you say you are a relative person or an absolute person? So that's tough because <laughs> I want to say, I, I like I, I definitely want to say I'm an absolute person. Um, I think the absolute measures have advantages over the relative measures in so many ways. But, you know, it would be, I would be lying if I pretended I always present Difference measures. Um, I often do present relative measures, but I, you know, if I was living, if I was living my best epi life, I think I would, I would present differences. What about you? So I try to present difference measures whenever possible. I do. It it creates problems in statistical software programs. It's much harder to get differences. I find than it is to get relative measures. Um, so it does complicate things, but I try when possible because just like I think risks are easier to interpret than rates, I think absolute measures are easier to interpret than relative measures. The advantage of the difference measures is you don't have to worry about the baseline measure um, nearly as much. You can just sort of think about the, the difference between them, whereas relative depends on how, how big the relative effect is, depends on how big the, the baseline risk is. And so, uh, you know, plus there's the public health benefit um, aspect to thinking about differences. Differences tell you more about public health impact than do relative measures. To go back to to person time measures and therefore incidence rate ratios, one of the things that, that stuck out to me, um, because again, because I I focus so much on risks. Um, you know, when I give examples in classes, I always set up a, a hypothetical risk calculation, not a, a rate calculation. But um, they they do a good job, I thought, in the in the in this text of talking about the the ways in which competing risks play out under under rate measures. That you know, I think probably get captured in risk measures, but it's it's much easier to see in in rate measures. So they say, and I'll just I'll read you the text, but I, I've simplified a little bit. And so they say as an extreme example, imagine that E, my exposure E, is an anti-smoking treatment. And my outcome D is being hit by a drunk driver. The exposure, anti-smoking treatment, let's say everybody in the population is a smoker, the anti-smoking treatment 
would likely increase time alive by stopping smoking and therefore stopping people from dying of, of smoking related diseases. So what it's going to do is it's going to increase the chance that my opportunities to be hit by a drunk driver. So whereas we might think intuitively that an anti-smoking treatment should have no effect on uh, being hit by a drunk driver, it may actually increase my risk for being hit by a drunk driver because it increases my time alive. Now, technically, I think that that sort of gets summed up as a competing risk, right? Essentially, what the anti-smoking intervention is doing is it's removing a competing risk of death by smoking-related causes and therefore increasing my time alive. But the way it would sort of play out in usual data is it would make it appear as if anti-smoking efforts increase the probability of being hit by a drunk driver. Right. That would certainly be some kind of headline-grabbing <laughs> result of your, <laughs> of your study. I mean, I wouldn't put it past, you know, to, to see something like that. There are all sorts of crazy things out there. But but this is a practical concern, I think, um, in the aging domain and, and the, the work that I do in older adults, because there are all sorts of um, ways in which you end up in a, a population of older adults. They use the example in the textbook of smoking reducing the average risk of Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's. And, and we see this a lot in, in cohorts of older adults that you start in old age where you've already lost a whole bunch of other people to smoking or whatever causes of death happened before they were able to reach old age. So you get all these kind of inverse and wonky associations um, with outcomes like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's that occur predominantly in, in older adults. So they, they give this kind of extreme, almost comical example about, you know, anti-smoking and, and drunk driving. But, but I think in real life, these sort of competing risk issues are very important in certain kind of substantive areas. I, I would agree with that. You know, it's like in this particular example, the the smoking cessation programs and, you know, risk of being hit by a drunk driver. It, it's like in, in a, if we did an actual study, it would probably be unnoticeable. Like, yeah, it probably does increase your time at risk for being hit by a drunk driver, but the, the risk of being hit by a drunk driver is so low that you're not really probably going to notice that. But in examples like you're talking about, where I, my point being, I don't think we're ever going to see the headline that says smoking cessation campaign causes drunk driving accidents because you wouldn't even notice it in, in the data, probably. But in the examples you're talking about, it, it really could make a difference. Um, now, I don't know that using a rate measure over a risk measure in any way solves that problem. And I think you really do need to think about competing risk frameworks at that point. But I just thought it was an interesting way in which person time plays out and can affect um, the way we think about causal relationships. Yeah, person time is, I, I honestly, I struggle with person time um, often because on its face, it's a very simple concept, you know? So you're just counting the amount of time in which somebody is in your study. Every, you know, when I teach it, there's these little line graphs and you count, you know, how many segments somebody is in and, and you know, you get your cohort has a person time of, X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is. But in when you think about the real life practicalities of counting person time, it is so impossible. I don't know how, I, I just, it's it's a really complicated concept. And, and that I think also helps to understand why I struggle with rates, because obviously the concept of person time is so central to the concept of rates. And I have a hard time with that. So it's, it's, Funny to me that you you say that it seems simple and straightforward, but it really isn't. Because I have a very clear memory of being in my intro to Epi course. And you know, they show you like in like probably your third or fourth class, or maybe it's even earlier, I don't even know, um, that diagram of person time. Uh, and they show you like a bunch of different people and they show you some of them get the event and some of them are censored and whatever. And, uh, and then they ask you to you know, calculate prevalence, and then they calculate an incident proportion, and then they calculate a, an incident rate. And I got like every single one of those questions wrong the first time through. And I thought, 
you know, like maybe I'm not cut out for this. Like maybe I should, you know, really think about a different uh, area of, of public health to be in. So I never thought it was simple. I guess the thing, right, is that I don't think getting the right answer is simple in any way. I think conceptually. Okay, so it's the amount of time that a person is being counted in your study. That, you know, I find that to be conceptually not difficult to understand. How much time is this person contributing to the group, the exposed or unexposed group, et cetera, right? But, but any time I need to calculate it, I'm totally with you. I just give up. <laughs> just throw your hands up in the air. Well, I'm glad you didn't quit after, you know, that line diagram issue. You can't see, but I'm throwing my hands up in the air and I'm... I am. I wasn't sure what exactly that, that move was. I think it was a dance move. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm sorry that the listeners couldn't see your moves. I'm sorry, too. I'm really sorry. Okay, so, so the textbook starts at this issue of effects that we talked about. It then goes through, talks about causal contrast, and then it talks about difference measures. So something like a rate difference or a risk difference, it moves into ratio measures. So the rate ratio or the risk ratio. And um, then we kind of move into what I will call the more theoretical parts of the the chapter. Um, and this, I think, is a really important section on association and confounding. So the one of the most challenging parts of, I think, teaching epidemiology is explaining to students the difference between measures of association and measures of effect. So Matt, when you are charged with doing this, how do you explain this to students? What do you say? What do you, what, you know, perspectives do you use when teaching this concept? Uh, so the, I, I very much focus on the, on the counterfactual framework at this point. And, you know, to me, this is, this is where a textbook like modern epidemiology diverges from an intro textbook, which, you know, obviously they're, they're designed to do very different things, but in a lot of ways, you know, I, you know, my feeling is always that, you know, every epidemiology methods course is, is basically the same thing. It's just, you know, different levels of, of how deep you go into it. But here, here's where I think things change in that, at least in, in the way I was, you know, I, I, what I remember of what I was taught in my intro classes, I don't ever remember anyone explaining to me that there was a difference between a measure of effect and a measure of association. It was all just sort of, you know, two different words we use for the same thing, because, at the end of the day, all you can measure are, you know, risk differences and risk ratios. And they're all, you know, risk, they're all measures of, of association or measures of effect or whatever. I didn't realize there was a, a difference in the terminology until I got to my third level methods course. And they, they started to explain the, the counterfactual model. So the way I would explain it is a measure of effect is when we compare in the, the, counterfactual or potential outcomes world, we compare the disease experience of one population under two different scenarios. So in one case, they get the exposure. In one case, they get whatever the causal alternative is. And we compare what happens to them in terms of their disease experience, starting from the same time point. And then I can calculate a, a measure of effect, the causal risk difference, the causal risk ratio, causal odds ratio, whatever I want. In the real world, though, I cannot actually compare one population under two scenarios. And therefore, what I'm left with is an associational measure. And an associational measure is when I measure two populations under two different scenarios, and I compare their disease experience. So I have an exposed population, I have an unexposed population, I follow them both in terms of their disease experience, and then I calculate a associational risk difference or an associational risk ratio. And the reason I'm doing that is because I am trying to approximate that causal risk difference. So that's how I would explain it. Because you cannot observe that counterfactual, all you're left with is measuring those those two different populations. And you have to do your very best to get that unexposed group to stand in for or to substitute for the counterfactual that you cannot observe. So this 
concept relates to or is exchangeability and that you want those two groups to be exchangeable for each other. The one that you observe is exchangeable for the one that that you cannot observe. We'll just frame it one way. The disease experience that the unexposed group has in the real world is the same as the disease experience that my exposed group would have had if I could go back in time and give them the unexposed condition. That's what I'm trying to do there. I'm trying to find an unexposed group that can tell me about that hypothetical disease experience that the exposed group would have had if they had been unexposed. That's very helpful because I think this is the probably all-star shining moment of this chapter, if not the book. And here's where all of the connections kind of You can't see my hands, but they're all coming together in my head. And that is this point. The factors that explain why the real world group is not a perfect stand-in for that counterfactual group that you cannot observe, the reasons, those factors, those are called confounders. And so we call that confounding, right? When there are confounders present... The substitute is not perfect. There is no longer exchangeability. And so that association is confounded and is not an estimate of the causal effect. Is that correct? I agree with all that. I I explain it, though, probably in the opposite direction, which is to say that to me, what matters is confounding. You know, confounding is when that stand-in population doesn't do their job perfectly of telling me about what would have happened to the exposed group if they had been unexposed. Confounders, then, are simply variables that explain that confounding and ultimately are the, the tools by which I remove the confounding. But ultimately, what I care about is confounding, not confounders. That's an interesting difference in perspectives because I always think about it in terms of the confounders because those are the variables causing the confounding, and those are the variables that I need to figure out what to do with in my analysis. Yep. From a, a practical standpoint, absolutely, I would agree with you that the confounders are what I have to, to focus on to try and remove the confounding. But to me, the, the confounders are a, a secondary, a second order question. What matters is, do I have confounding? And then if I do, how do I use those those variables to remove the confounding? That's interesting that we that we see it in two opposite ways, but ultimately the, the point is still the same, I, I suppose. Once the book has gone through this idea of what is confounding, you know, what are confounders, it does a very nice job of introducing this concept of causal response types from the Greenland and Robbins paper. Identifiability, exchangeability, and Epidemiologic confounding from 1986, and I will say, like this is a, a paper that I think fundamentally changed epidemiology. Have you read that paper? Have you tried to read that paper? I, not only have I read it, it is it is on my list of two papers that I read once a year. Once a year. Mm-hmm. I reread it once a year. That's that's an admirable goal. I have read it, or I'll, rather, I'll say I've done my best going over the words over and over again and I find it very hard to understand. So, but I think it's much more interpretable in textbook format than I than it is in paper format, perhaps because they've had 30 years to refine the message for people like me who didn't understand it the first time around. So, do you want to do you want to explain the the basic premise of what that paper does to sort of use the counterfactual model? to make the distinction between causation and confounding? I will give it an attempt and please jump in when I get it wrong. So there are four types of individuals. The first type of person, type one as they define it, are individuals who what they call are doomed. So regardless of whether or not they get the exposure, um, or I suppose you know, are in the unexposed group, they will have the outcome. So those people doomed, or you could call them screwed. They're just, <laughs> they're going to get it regardless. I don't think that was in the text. That's that's a Haleyism. That's a, let's say a colloquial term for doomed. <laughs> But what if so, what, what, what no what what if what if the outcome is something good like winning the lottery? 
yes. So theoretically, that's possible. But I would guess that by the phrasing doomed, they weren't talking about something terrific like winning the lottery. So those are the type ones, the doomed folks who are going to have the outcome um, regardless of what exposure they actually get. The second type of people are those in which the exposure is causal. So that means they only have the outcome if they receive the exposure. They do not end up with the outcome if they do not have the exposure. So that's the second type of person. The third type of person is the opposite. So the third type of person are those who do not get the outcome if they have the exposure. So those who do not have the outcome, if they have the exposure, those are people in whom the exposure is preventive. They, they do not get the outcome if they're exposed, but they do get it if they're unexposed. Right. And then the fourth type of person are those who are immune. So regardless of whether they get the exposure or don't get the exposure, they are not going to have the outcome that you're worried about, about them getting. So, so those folks are considered immune. These response types, I think, are very helpful on a conceptual level, thinking about who is going to end up with your outcome or not. Matt, will you help us, help me link those response types to the concept of confounding? Yeah, sure. So so the idea here is if we define causation under the counterfactual model to be, if I'm comparing two conditions, one exposed and one unexposed, we say causation occurs whenever the outcomes differ under the two scenarios. That means that the causation occurs for type twos and type threes. So for, for type twos, getting the exposure causes their outcome. They get the outcome if they're exposed, but they don't if they're unexposed. For type threes, their exposure prevents them from getting the outcome. They don't get the outcome if exposed. They do get it if they're unexposed. So those are the two groups that we really care about in terms of causation. The problem that we have is that people do not come with their counterfactual susceptibility types written on their foreheads. And therefore, you, you, if you see somebody who gets the outcome, you don't know if they're a type one or a type two if they're in the exposed group. And if you see somebody in the exposed group who doesn't get the outcome, you don't know if they're a type three or a type four. So in order to get at causation, we can think about what is the measure ideally we would like to have. Instead of thinking about individuals, in epidemiology, we think about populations. And so instead of thinking about type ones, type twos, type threes, and type fours, let's think about what proportion of a population is type one, two, three, and four. And so we'll, we'll refer to those as P1, P2, P3, and P4. If I think about who gets the outcome, what the risk of the outcome is in my exposed group, who gets the outcome? It's type ones and type twos. So the proportion of the population that gets the outcome in my exposed group is going to be P1 plus P2. If I think about who would get the outcome in the exposed group if they had been unexposed, well, under non-exposure, type ones and type threes get the outcome. So the risk of the outcome in the exposed group, if they had been unexposed, would be P1 plus P3. So if I want to know the causal risk difference, the risk difference that this exposed population would have under exposure compared to themselves under non-exposure, it would be P1 plus P2 minus P1 plus P3. You subtract those and the ones drop out. It's just P2 minus P3. And that kind of makes sense because remember, the type 2s and the type 3s are the ones for whom the exposure has a causal role. In the real world, we go from causal measures, effect measures, to associational measures. I can't observe my exposed group under both exposure and non-exposure. So instead, what I do is I observe my exposed group under exposure. And now I take a second population. And we'll call those, instead of Ps, we'll call them Qs. And they get non-exposure. So now I'm going to, in my associational measure, I'm going to observe P1 plus P2 getting the outcome in my exposed group. But I'm going to get Q1 plus Q3 getting the outcome in my unexposed group. 
So my associational risk difference is now P1 plus P2 minus Q1 plus Q3. Now nothing cancels out because now instead of all P's, I've got P's and Q's because I'm in the real world and I have two different populations. What I really want to know, though, remember, was the causal risk difference, which was P2 minus P3. So the question is, when will association equal causation? And the answer to that is, I need the risk of the outcome, the proportion of the population that gets the outcome in my unexposed group to be exactly the same as the proportion of the population that got the outcome in my exposed group if they had been unexposed. When will that be true? That will be true when P1 plus P3 equals Q1 plus Q3, because Q1 plus Q3 is the risk that I observe in my unexposed group, and they are a good stand-in for the counterfactual if that Q1 plus Q3, their disease risk under non-exposure, is equal to the hypothetical disease experience that the exposed group would have had if they had been unexposed. So if P1 plus P3 equals Q1 plus Q3, we have no confounding. Association equals causation. If P1 plus P3 does not equal Q1 plus Q3, association does not equal causation, and we have confounding. And so we're making the mathematical link from confounding as a concept to confounding being the extent to which my unexposed group cannot stand in for the counterfactual for the exposed group under non-exposure. And so to me, as complicated as it is, it's a really nice way to make that link between the counterfactual world and the things that we see in the real world. I just love this explanation so much. It's like if I could have that little mind blown emoji right now, that's what I look like at this very moment because it makes this argument so clear. These concepts seem so abstract and these couple of pages here just tie it all together in this nice little bow. What is confounding? Why does this matter? Why do you know why do we care about exchangeability, etc.? It's so clear when I hear you explain it in that way. So I hope that others get that same takeaway message like I do. Right. If you don't, if because, of course, I'm, I'm talking about numbers and, you know, if you haven't read the chapter or read the paper, it's, you know, that probably wasn't the best way to explain it. So, so the other way to think about it is just simply in terms of the exchangeability. Can my unexposed group do what they are there for? They're there to tell me about what would have happened to my exposed group if they had been unexposed. If they can do that, then association equals causation. If they can't do that, if they misrepresent the disease experience of the exposed group under non-exposure, then I, I get the wrong answer. And we call that difference between the truth and the observation, we call that confounding. And to me, that's really, it's really elegant. That one question is the crux of all this topic that we discuss about counterfactuals and confounding. This question about substitution, about exchangeability, if you do not have that, you cannot get the right answer you are looking for in this causal effect framework. And, and I think that that is just a very intuitive way beyond the P's and the Q's, understanding which population you are substituting for is is a very important concept. My favorite paper on the topic is not that um, Greenland paper that you mentioned, but it's a different Greenland paper by Greenland and Morgenstern mm -hmm. in the Annual Reviews of Public Health. I find very well written and explained in non-mathematical terms. So mm -hmm. for those of you that might be like me that are not quite as mathematical, I would I would encourage that as a different type of reference to, to understand these concepts better. I, agree. I totally agree. So can we talk about a couple of, of nuances that come up in this chapter that I think are really interesting? Yeah, let's go for it. So, so the first one that's interesting is they say type 1s may include some whose outcome 
was caused by the exposure, which is something that, you know, intuitive. I mean, I certainly knew because I do actually teach this this way, but I, I sort of didn't really put it together in quite this way. I mean, essentially what they are saying here is exactly what we were talking about in the beginning with the example of the the, the poisoning versus dying of dehydration, which is that you can have a person who completes a causal mechanism that, you know, sufficient cause mechanism that contains the exposure, but is still a type one because they would still get the outcome under non-exposure through a mechanism that didn't contain the exposure. Again, getting back to that idea of there are different ways here of, or, or nuances to the ways that we think about causation. Yes. And, and that is the best way, I think, of tying in the sufficient cause model to this counterfactual model. There may be different causal pies for each of these different types. You know, they're using this type one example, but you won't necessarily, you in most cases, won't know what the causal pie looks like for for those type one individuals. It could be because of the exposure, it could be completely unrelated because they're, you know, they're in that doomed group. But the counterfactual model doesn't differentiate between those causes in the same explicit way that the sufficient component cause model does. So, so you know, I would say there's room for both of these types of, of models and, and they're both contributing really important aspects to our understanding of, of these concepts. So I, I totally agree. Of course, I, I mean, I don't think it makes probably any practical difference in the way that we actually yeah, behave, but I, I just think it's helpful in sort of thinking through the nuance. The The second thing that I think is interesting here is this idea of, of type twos and type threes coexisting. So that for the same exposure outcome pair, you can have some people in the population for whom the exposure causes the outcome, and you can have other people for whom the exposure prevents the outcome. So one example of that would be vaccination with a, a live vaccine. If your outcome is getting the, the infection, for most people, getting the vaccination will prevent them from getting the disease. But for a small portion of the population, getting the vaccination will cause them to get the disease. And so these average causal effects are really telling us about the balance of type twos and type threes. I mean, I suspect in, in the real world, it's probably rare that they ever perfectly balance each other out. But, you know, I suspect it's probably reasonably common that there are exposure outcome pairs that can be, you know, both causal and preventive for different people. I guess so. I mean, I, I think on a practical level, probably not not super common for this to have a, a measurable, demonstrable effect um, on the relationship you're measuring. But but I do guess that, you know, I think the vaccine example is a, or the live vaccine example is a very good one um, to demonstrate that concept. But again, you'll never know. And so is it worth worrying about? Right. I mean, so I, I suppose there are probably cases where we do know. So, for example, uh, seatbelts in, in automobile accidents, they, they prevent death in, in automobile accidents more often than they cause deaths. But they, they do actually cause some deaths. And I suspect that we often know the cases where the, the or maybe we don't know with certainty, but we have a good suspicion in the cases where the seatbelt caused the death and the cases where it prevented. We don't know for certain, but we probably have a reasonable idea. I'm not sure on a practical level it makes much difference. Sure, sure, fair enough. And then the last point that I think is really interesting here is the way that uh, Greenland and Robbins define this, and, and I haven't gone back and read the original paper uh, this year yet, so I don't remember whether they allude to you know other options here, but the way they define things is in terms of the effect of the treatment on the treated. So they say, we care about what actually happened to the exposed group. We care about the unexposed group only insofar as they tell us about what would have happened to the exposed group if they had been unexposed. And the extent to which we have confounding is entirely a function of the unexposed group not doing their job. But if we actually care about the average causal effect, then Actually, we don't just need the unexposed to be able to stand in for what would have happened to the exposed group if they'd been unexposed. We also need the exposed group to be
be able to stand in for what would have happened to the unexposed group if they had been exposed. Or we could be interested in the effect of the treatment on the untreated. So, you know, they partic- they they pick one effect measure that we could be interested in, but there are others and they would require slightly different definitions of, of no confounding. Sure. And I think, you know, it practically makes sense when you're doing a study, let's say you're, you're having, you're doing a trial, you are interested in the effect of your treatment on the group that you are giving that treatment to. So I think that focus makes sense. But again, I, there are situations I, in which you could construct it to mean other things. Well, so so do we always though? I mean, for example, we're talking about COVID vaccines. You know, we can we can do the study in which you know we do the trial and we're interested in the effect of the treatment on the treated. But you know, then we put out the vaccines in the world, and you know, then we might be interested in the effect of the treatment on the treated in terms of those who actually chose to get the the you know came forward for the vaccine but we might also be interested in the effect of the treatment on the untreated because we want to know what is going to be the effect if we could convince those people who chose not to get the vaccine to get vaccinated so you know it seems to me we we are often we are sometimes interested in in different effect measures oh absolutely i i think maybe i misstated my my position that i think for the most part the, you know, we're interested in the effect of the treatment on the treated. There could be scenarios in which, you know, a different estimate would be relevant, um, depending on the, the question you're answering. And, and that's a nice piece of flexibility that is built in to, to this, you know, counterfactual model. But it, it, oh, sorry, even in the even in the trial example, I, I would think I might be more interested in the, the average treatment effect, because I, I'm actually interested in you know, a world in which I treat all of the people in the study, not just those who, you know, by chance didn't get the intervention. Now, in a trial, it doesn't matter because in a trial you get full exchangeability. You can you can you can estimate anything you want. But you know, just sort of thinking that the trial example, I think you might also be interested in the average treatment effect. All right, Matt, I think that's all we have time for today, but I know that I benefited a lot from your explanations of the concepts covered in this chapter on measures of effect and association. So thanks for for your patient explanations. I think you did a really terrific job there. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Chicago. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you like that one. We really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode coming up next month. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research.